Hello, Joe. How are things? Not too bad. Dare I ask you how your day was today? <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. I'm fine. Okay, good. Yeah, I had a fine it. day. <laughs> Excellent. Because this is the start to a new year. It is. So well, hopefully well, your, your year is starting off okay. It actually started off really well. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So today I have a time travel question. Seeing as we're now becoming a time travel podcast, it seems to come up every episode. <laughs> if you could travel through time to the past, who would you most like to meet? Oh, boy. You know, the interesting thing is uh, just to pompously drop some some names. I was reading Margaret Atwood's Substack today, and uh, she reminded me of someone who I would not want to meet, who was uh, Robespierre. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think he was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. So that immediately comes to mind is who I would not want to meet. But who I would want to meet? Gee, there's a number of Roman emperors that I would be interested mm, in, yeah. in meeting. Yeah. Octavian would probably be the first, but then others as well. I would like to see, yeah, Marcus Aurelius. I would love to talk, chat with oh, that guy. Oh, absolutely. I read his book. I need to read his book. Oh, it's worth reading. Yeah, it, it, it stands up, though it's highly ironic. So what about yourself? Oh, I know. I, I knew you were going to ask me that. It's like, oh, shit, why did I ask this question? I have no answer to this question. <laughs> yeah, Marcus Aurelius is a good choice. It's got kind of an obvious one, but I would love if I could get past the, the language barrier. Buddha. I'd love to talk to Buddha because he was a real person. Gautama Buddha. Yeah. Absolutely. And what would you ask Buddha? I would ask him what he meant because I once wrote an essay about that in my undergrad and it took me the better part of the whole term. I knew I knew at the start of the term what the, what the essay was and I still needed an extension and I'm still not sure I got the answer right. So I'd love to chat with him about what his philosophy was. Yeah, we got to get our hands in a time machine. And yeah, uh, so we've given our guest uh, plenty of time to ponder <laughs> this question. I think he didn't seem panicked at all. That's the that's the worrying part. He's like, I saw him look a little reflective. I think DG Valdrin, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Well, nice to be here. So I guess to answer the question for me, I'm not, I think I would like to meet the guy that invented the wheelbarrow. We don't know his name, but yeah. uh, it was a useful invention that was probably revolutionary. Uh, in its time, it, it changed the way people worked. It's changed the way people move things around. Uh, maybe the guy that invented the horseshoe, the person who invented the horse collar, the woman who figured out how to cook cassava without, you know, dying of poisoning. Uh, the history is hmm. full of people doing absolutely amazing things over and over. And most of them we don't remember. We don't even know about. Uh, they're all just part of this human tapestry. And mostly the people that we do remember, they're just freaking horrible, you know. Um, they're just <laughs> like awful. Robespierre, yeah. yeah, yeah, Robespierre. I mean, take Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was probably a nice enough guy. Uh, he was one of these uh, country gentleman philosophers, and he had uh, a lot of interesting things to say about freedom and equality and human dignity, and then you know the formation of the American Constitution, and a lot of idealism and thought goes into that. Uh, he, he was also a slave owner who raped this teenage girl so many times he had like a handful of children with her and, and he bought and sold slaves. That's hard to reconcile. But then that's yeah. the best. Everybody is horrible, especially the famous ones. What's my answer? Well, okay. So let me, I'm, I'm going to do a little uh, fanboy thing here, which mm -hmm. I've only done a couple of times. You were the author of The Mermaid's Tale, 
which we did an entire episode on. I think it was our second, second episode, one. actually. Yeah. Yeah. And that is because I'm a great admirer of that book. I'm a great admirer of your writing. And, uh, and of course, we shared an editor on that book as well, Robert uh, Dr. Robert yes. Rente. He once said that if he was only remembered for, for nothing else, he wished that he could be remembered for your book, The Mermaid's Tale, for having edited that. Note he did not say my book, <laughs> but I, I would agree because I think that your book is by far the better of the two. But not only that, I once wrote that you are incapable of writing an uninteresting sentence, and I believe that to be true. I feel like that's a challenge. I may have to take that one up. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, that's very flattering. And I'd, I'd like to say that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm terrific. I'm amazing. I'm, I'm just <laughs> an undiscovered Nobel Prize winner. I'm a literary genius. Yeah, sure. Um, there are a lot of very good writers out there. And some of us get yeah. discovered and some of us don't. You know, probably the best writer in the world or the best physicist in the world lived their entire life shoveling camel dung and never got near like a, a math equation or the right bit of parchment. It, it really is a crapshoot wow. life. And, and so you, yeah. you kind of do what you can, you take what you can, and you make whatever mark you can where an opportunity presents itself. So is this the point where I go into a little bit of a bio? Well, I, was, I was just <laughs> going to say, I why don't I you just... Yes. yes, yes, please do. I'm the author of a book called The Mermaid's Tale. I'm also the author of uh, an alternate history called Axis of Andes about World War II happening in South America. Author of The Bear Cavalry, which is a really strange mock documentary thing. I've got a whole pile of short stories uh, that are in a number of collections called Giant Monsters Sing Sad Songs or Drunk Slutty Elf and Zombies, <laughs> just to name a couple, or Dawn of Cthulhu. And uh, I've also written uh, Lex Unauthorized about a Canadian television series that was probably one of the most interesting science fiction series that, that came out in the last 20 years. And I remember uh, that. I've written uh, something called a trilogy, Pirate's History of Doctor Who, uh, which was intended to be one book, but I just couldn't stop myself. So it turned out to be three. <laughs> so. And that is actually the subject of our discussion today. A Pirate's History, Another Pirate's History, and The Last Pirate's History. And they're all darn good books and really interesting. And, and honestly, they cure cancer in rats. Um, and they're a perfect gift <laughs> for any Christmas. <laughs> well, let's get lots, lots of warning then for next year. Mark, are you a Doctor Who fan? Not really. I mean, I have watched Doctor Who. Uh, I was trying to think about that before the podcast. Uh, Tom Baker was my original Doctor Who. I watched him yeah. when I lived in England the first time. And then I, I kind of got re-engaged when Christopher Ecclestone was the Doctor Who. And I watched, um, oh, David Tennant for sure. I think I saw most of his. And I and then I, I, I really liked um, Matt Smith. I liked his version of Doctor Who too. But then for some reason, I just, I, I faded out again. So yeah, I've been in and out with Doctor Who, but I'm not like a super fan. I haven't watched all of them. I don't really know all the lore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I never get into the original Doctor Who. I was because I, I was more of a Star Trek fan and, and was unimpressed by what I saw. Although I did, you know, get into Baker a little bit briefly. But then my daughters were big Doctor Who fans of the new series. So yeah. I watched most of those up to a certain point and enjoyed much of those. But the Doctor Who that you're talking about, DG, is is alternate Doctor Who, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's it's uh, Doctor Who that shows up in the corners. And really what uh, what the books are about, it started off way back in, I think, the 1980s. I was a Doctor Who fan back then, or at least enough of a fan to actually go to fan club meetings. Now, the thing was, hmm. way back then, I was living out in Manitoba, Canada. You could watch Doctor Who on Prairie Public Television on Saturday nights. You could watch a few episodes and that would be it. But by that time, Doctor Who had about 20 years of videotapes around. And if you were hooked up with a fan club, then you had access to some of these videotapes. You could watch extra. You could watch other stuff. You could hear about some of the behind the scenes stuff. So I got involved in the fan club. And one night, a young woman came in with uh, something that just blew me away, something I'd never seen before. It was Doctor Who where the doctor was a woman, played by uh, Barbara Benedetti. And there were four episodes. And I mean, this is the 80s. The show probably was in its rocky phase. They'd switched over to uh, video when it really wasn't looking good. The budget had been cut, the production values. There were all kinds of conflicts. So the show was kind of like on a slump. And I was watching an episode of Doctor Who that was well acted, well shot, that had a vivid natural landscape or, or settings and a good story and was shot in 16 millimeter uh, film. Hmm. So it was actually to a better standard than the television show at that time. So it was not the BBC. It was privately independently done. It was a fan film produced by uh, Ryan K. Johnston out in Seattle, and he made a series of them. Now, what had happened with Ryan was that there was some sort of filmmaking contest. He was a big Doctor Who fan, so he decided to make a Doctor Who film. And he knew a local actress named Barbara Benedetti, who was appearing in a stage play called Desperate Housewives. And that was going on for about six or seven years. And he was able to talk her and her friend, Randy Rogel, into into appearing. And and so I thought, wow, this is amazing. It was was a, a moment of revelation. You know, because I was a small town boy and and what I knew of culture, what I knew of media was the stuff that came from Hollywood, the stuff that was being dumped on us, the stuff that we were supposed to buy. And this was one of a number uh, of remarkable things that just kind of blew my mind. The fact that people could create something. It wasn't the only instance. I watched uh, a film called Decline of the American Empire with Denise Arcand. Uh, way back then. And that was a revelation, the fact that Canadians could actually make interesting movies. Or uh, The Adventures of Faustus Bidgood, which is pretty obscure today, but if you watch uh, This Hour Has 22 Minutes, or Codco, or all of the films that came out of Salter Street, I mean, that was the beginning of all of that. And so, you know, over and over again, I'm, I'm being exposed to the idea that, wow, People can create, and people can create these interesting, brilliant things. People can can do these riffs. We are not just subject to corporate culture. And in fact, with uh, The Wrath of Ucor, starring Barbara Benedetti as the first woman to play the Doctor, 40 years before Jodie Whittaker, literally, huh. we had uh, something amazing and, and something wonderful. And it wasn't... It was certainly, a, I think, a feminist triumph, but it was a triumph of people being creative, of doing something. And and that's how I eventually got into the area of, of sort of this sort of marginal Doctor Who, the stage plays, the, the animations, the 
uh, fan films, this, this whole area of cultural production where somebody takes the actual licensed thing, takes the, the thing that's official and does something with it. Does something quite often that's really interesting and, and can be challenging, can be, can be worthwhile, can, can present as much enjoyment and interest as something that they spend 50 or $100 million on. And then, you know, a bunch of kids or a bunch of young adults are doing something that's almost equivalent to that with the budget that, you know, they found under seat cushions at home. Yeah. You know? yeah. Wow. And for me, just one more thing. It's, and, and maybe this should be my tagline later on, but one of the things that so impresses me about this is not just that it's good. Some of it is good. The best of it is amazing. A lot of it is just terrible. <laughs> like seriously, seriously, love and dedication and enthusiasm and hard work are often no substitute for skill and talent. That's just life. Hmm. But the thing with all of this is they're not doing it for money. The, the people who are making these fan films and the stage plays and all that. They're doing it for love because they, they really love something. And I think that's just about the best reason there is to do anything. So there you go. Hmm. My first reaction is that the portion of this that is that is really good or entertaining or brilliant, what a shame that most of us don't get to partake of it. Mm -hmm. Or can we? Well, I mean, that's kind of interesting because almost no creativity happens in a vacuum. There's an audience someplace. And one of the things I explore on the, in the books is, is how technology changed. I mean, you start getting fan films when you had Super 8. This goes all the way back to 19, the 1960s. In 1960, if you've seen, you know, the, the Spielberg, uh, Abrams movie, Super 8. The Fablemans. The Fablemans, yes. You could buy, like, your home film camera, and you could actually take home movies. And people took uh, movies of their birthday parties and uh, clips of their vacation and stuff like this, family gatherings and get-togethers. But for, for kids who loved toys, who loved to be creative for adults who saw an opportunity. That became a source of creativity. And of course, it's, there's a limitation to it. You only get one copy. You can only show it on, a, on an expensive projector. There's all this baggage to go through. But suddenly you started to see fan films starting up. People were creating their own versions of Star Trek and Star Wars. Well, Star Wars would come along later. Or Doctor Who or Tarzan or, or whatever. They're cowboy movies. And because it was fun to be creative and, and they'd have these very limited venues. There was a guy who did something called Paragon's Paragon and it was uh, in the 1970s and it's a Star Trek movie. It's a feature length Star Trek movie made by some guy named John Constantino who was like a, a carpet layer in, in Brooklyn <laughs> or, or Boston or someplace. And he rebuilt the entire sets of the Enterprise out of cardboard. He sewed all the costumes. <laughs> he did the whole thing. Um, you can find clips of that on on YouTube. And it looks interesting because, you know, you've got that kind of 70s facial hair all over the place. Um, you've got some stop motion. You've got a bunch of interesting things. I think I, I'm, I suspect it would be death to watch the whole thing. I think it would be painful. But it it's it's actually really fun to watch the clips. Anyway, from there, we started to get VHS and home movies. And then the camcorders came out and suddenly it got to be a lot easier. Around the time that I got into fandom for Doctor Who, 
the society was literally built around trading and exchanging uh, videotapes. There was like a, a kind of VHS network that was flowing around. And that's, you know, where people were actually recording episodes of the real show, distributing it all over. They were trading back and forth. And that was a gateway to discover a lot of British science fiction. So that was when we saw Blake Seven. That was when we saw Blackadder. We saw the tripods. There were a whole bunch of cultural products that were just flowing through these fan networks. And uh, so that was where fan films came in. People started to make their own and they would enter the, the networks. And as time goes on, you have the internet, you have people uploading things. And now you have YouTube, Vimeo. Um, there's a, a lot of amazing stuff just in terms of amateur production all over mm -hmm. YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, you can make a feature film with your camera now. Exactly. Yeah. It has been you done know. professionally. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the tools are much better for sure. Yeah, yeah computerized editing, uh, computerized sound mixes. Like there are 14-year-old boys or, or 13, 12-year-old girls who have a green screen in their bedroom and they're doing their mm -hmm. own special effects. Mm -hmm. Well, that's amazing, wonderful, a little bit terrifying, but, you know, that's cool. What does this mean then for professional work? Is any of this a threat to that? If, if people can get access to quality for the love productions, why are we paying for other stuff? I think that's kind of a yes and no proposition, because if you look at, say, Disney or Warner Brothers, uh, Marvel, etc., they are making very big movies and they are spending gigantic amounts of money on it. I think Indiana Jones costs something like $200, $300 million, and you are, are literally commissioning a medium-sized town's worth of technical staff to to do these things. If you watch the credits, it just goes on and on and on for miles. Yeah, yeah. And they're 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 using high-end everything, and and they've got like you know fight choreographers who trained in Hong Kong, and they've got like these professional crews of lighting technicians. And for a lot of your amateur independent filmmakers or your you know the people who are making fan films, well. Okay, they're precocious, they're enthusiastic, they may be talented, but there's maybe a handful of them. And and so, you know, you've got this guy who's making his home Star Wars film, his home Doctor Who film. No, he doesn't have a fight choreographer. He doesn't have <laughs> like a whole bunch of lighting technicians. He doesn't have all of this stuff. You know, so the, the productions are more limited. And he certainly, he certainly does not have the marketing budget. They don't have the, the army of lawyers to, to do their errors and omissions. They don't have access to Hulu and Netflix and Prime and definitely not to the major theaters. Do they constitute the farm team for the, the professionals? Do they go on to become the professionals? I think some of them do. I mean, you know, you look at Spielberg. He started out doing Super 8 millimeters uh, film. Uh, same thing for Lucas. If you look at, say, people like Joe Dante, there are all these guys that were making you know, these little tiny, you know, eight millimeter monster movies. And we see this uh, again today. There's, uh, I think the big success in Doctor Who fandom is this guy who did a set of titles. And he, they were good enough that, uh, that the BBC bought them and hired him. So he, he actually got a professional job out of that. And, you know, you are seeing cases like that. And quite often, you're often seeing people who are kind of mixing and matching. There was a guy who, who was a big Ghostbusters fan. a much fan. better outcome than being sued. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he, he was going to film school, 
And he basically made a feature length amateur Ghostbusters movie as his film school project. So, wow. Was it any good? It was okay. It was okay. It had some new ideas. And, well, I'll put it this way it was good enough that Harold Ramis, before he died, saw it and sent them some complimentary letters. And he even made a reference to it in the Ghostbusters uh, video game. Uh, that was essentially the third Ghostbusters film. So it's semi-canonical. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Huh. I got to jump in because when you're talking about making like the Star Wars stuff, just the I- image of Michael Sarah in the garage from Arrested Development pretending he was <laughs> fighting with a lightsaber just jumped into my head. It's like, yeah, there's, yeah. there's yes. a lower end yes. quality of those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, but there was uh, there was a Star Wars uh, fan film called Hardware Wars uh, that used to <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. technology with, you know, plumbing, and it was a nice little parody. Uh, if you're doing a parody, it's generally legal, a parody or, or satirical take. Yeah. Yeah. That's an yeah. exception in, in copyright law. And a lot of fan films tended to go that way. And it was a tribute to something they loved. And the thing is, with most fan films, uh, is, you know, there's no money in it. You're not doing it for, for any recompense. You're just yeah. creating it for your friends, putting it up there, sometimes spending an insane amount of money on it. Again, it comes down to you're doing something you love. And generally, unless you are trying to commercialize it, and there was one Star Trek group that did that, nobody's coming down. They, they just see it as free promotion. You know, if it's good, they might steal something from it or borrow something or hire somebody. But, you know, they're okay with it. Well, yeah. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, as they mm-hmm. say. So, yeah. And yeah. I think it's a positive thing because I think one of the things that comes up here is that so much of popular culture is literally colonized. If you go back, say, 100 years ago or 120 years ago, say between 1880 and 1920, a lot of popular culture was basically out there in the pulp domain. People were doing their cowboy stories. People were doing their you know, pirate stories. They were doing uh, literature or novels or stories or pulps, all kinds of stuff. And it was kind of like, uh, not say public domain per se, but it was sort of Wild West where nobody really owned things. But now, I mean, if you're looking at science fiction, then really you're looking at Star Wars and Star Trek. And those two franchises own something like 80% of the field. And then there's a few lesser franchises, Star Trek, Alien, uh, Farscape, et cetera, Stargate. And, and that's it. If you look at music, 120 years ago or 100 years ago, there were all kinds of musicians making all kinds of songs. And now we are all listening to Britney Spears or or whoever the latest Taylor Swift or, or Kanye West. Speak for yourself, I'm going to say. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if I agree with that, yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah. I think uh, at this point in history, because of the streamers, I think people are listening to a wider variety of, like maybe you're right in the sense that what's popular is just a limited number of things. But mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. I would argue that people are listening to all kinds of things. I, you know, I heard I heard this loud noise coming from one of my undergrads, not last term, but a couple terms ago. And I'm like, I'm like, you shouldn't have it that loud in your buds. And then she took them and said, "What?" And it was a symphony. <laughs> She's listening to classical music. I'm like, that's okay. I'm not going to say anything. Just keep listening. Yeah, we have so much of our culture which is literally colonized, which is sort of locked down as intellectual properties that are now sort of difficult to break into or difficult to wield. 
And, and we've got these new technologies where now people are able to listen to more and more diverse things. People are able to like mm-hmm. open things up, try and find or, or search things out. Colonized culture, maybe not the best phrase for it, but things like Doctor Who, Star Trek, Star Wars, all of the, the big franchises, you know, they occupy their territory. They occupy psychic landscape. If you want to make an alien movie uh, about aliens, probably there's no market for it because everybody goes to, you know, the real alien or the real Star Trek. And so for a lot of people who are creating, it's kind of interesting to create on this sort of shadow realm, this, this sort of borderland where you're trespassing on this territory, you're not making any money out of it, but you were able to work with the tools. And I think that's a positive thing. And, and I think that opens the door to, to further creativity. Have you ever been tempted to create that sort of thing yourself? Oh, fan fiction? Okay, I've written things that I I think would qualify as fan fiction. I do these sort of peculiar uh, television film alternate history uh, excursions. I'm not going to write a Doctor Who novel or a uh, Star Trek novel unless somebody is paying me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've I've messed around in Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, you know, Martian world. If you find something that's really engaging, you do tend to to want to play with it. As to making mm. a fan film, I look at some of this stuff and it is so amazing. And I realize that these things are being made by people in their 20s and 30s. And I think, Jesus, I wasted my life when I could have been doing stuff like this. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, but you know what? Like, I think of The Mermaid's Tale. I've already said it's blisteringly good, but it bears repeating it's kind of playing on the, you know, the Lord of the Rings turf, you know, with those, with orcs and, and trolls and dwarves and, but you make it completely your own. So in, in a way you are kind of playing with existing materials, but that you're taking that clay and you're creating something startlingly original out of it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think the mermaid's tale also bears uh, some debts to say the works of Dashiell Hammett, the hard-boiled detective film noir. Oh, yeah. I was very, yeah. very influenced by film noir uh, when I was writing it. And uh, I, was, I was actually trying to, to invert film noir. So in, in film noir, you have, say, the, the, the honest man who descends into darkness on his mission. And, and in The Mermaid's Tale, what you have is a, a sort of reverse film noir of a monster who is climbing up into the light on her mission. So, yes, there's that. Like the thing with creativity, right? Everybody thinks that creativity is like this light bulb that comes out of nowhere, that it's sui generis, that it has no origins, no precedent. But really, 99% of creativity is just picking up what's in the landscape and adopting it and trying to synthesize it with other stuff. We Most creativity is just taking something and combining it with something else and then seeing what develops out of that. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's sort of, uh, that comes back to the colonization of intellectual property, which I think tends to interfere with that process because if you can't take something and start playing with it and maybe start looking at how to synthesize it, how to combine it with something else, where you can go with it, uh, that, that's an obstacle. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, for myself, for The Mermaid's Tale, for the books and short stories I've written, I don't pretend to be super original. What I do think I, I have is is I'll take ideas that are out there and I will combine them and, and do something new or interesting with them. I'll give you an example. In a book I did called Dawn of Cthulhu, you've all heard of Lovecraft and the Lovecraft, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Cthulhu oh. cult and stuff. 
And, and so I, I kind of took a look at that and I thought, hey, what if it was a real religion? I mean, maybe that Cthulhu was about as real or unreal as any other god like Allah or Jehovah or whoever. But it was a real religion with history and origins. And you could work your way backwards and trace the evolution to here and here and how find out or, or work out how the gods came about and what was really going on. And so, you know, uh, it was a really nice piece to do. But that's fundamentally creativity. None of us are, are super geniuses. We all build stuff out of other stuff. All our civilization, everything yeah. we've ever done, we build on Even everything that we've talked about is all, it's not, I'm not going to say derivative, that's too strong a word, but Star Wars comes from Joseph Campbell and the idea of knights and like it's got a very medieval thing, whereas Star Trek comes from the idea of the Western and the, the Trek and going mm -hmm. West. And like these things are all tropes that, so I think you've defined creativity, which is just taking the tropes and mashing them together and finding new forms. And that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Well, who was it that said standing on the shoulders of giants? Yeah. You know, I think that was it's, Isaac it's creativity. Who, uh, who invented Mavity. Um, Interesting fellow, often a jerk, but I think he was right on that front. <laughs> he was an alchemist. <laughs> what he was trying to do is make gold out of lead, but he got distracted by mm -hmm. He was a failure. Yeah. He also would engage in these uh, long correspondences with other leading uh, scientific men of his age. And once it got to a certain point, he would burn all the correspondence and literature and just say, <laughs> look at what I came out with. You know, oh, oh my God. Yeah, that's, um, that's yeah, a jerk. So that's, that's, part <laughs> of, that's part of his reputation. Yeah. And, I know. I, yeah, yeah I that. He, he was a brilliant genius for his time, but, uh, and he did accomplish genuine things, but he did not do it alone like he pretended. Well, I have a question though, and I, and I, I don't mean this in a mean way, because I, I really do believe in, uh, Kurt Vonnegut has a quote about how everyone should be creative in whatever they, way they want to. And the reason for that, because... That's what makes your soul soul grow when you're creative. Uh, I think you're growing your soul. What makes us human? It makes us human. So, like, mm -hmm. so I'm prefacing what I'm going to say with that because I agree that all of this fandom is great and it's very creative. But wouldn't you rather, like, you're talking about the colonization of those mega media, and that's what those fandoms are really? They're living within the colony of like what they've seen on the big screen or they've read in a book that's the world they're playing with and i'm wondering what wouldn't it be better if we just made up our own things and did what sure. we do as writers just mash stuff together and wouldn't that be better sure i hear that all the time and uh, especially from from lawyers who go yeah this is this is property that's owned why didn't you just go and create something brand new god damn it but here's the thing right See, creativity doesn't exist in a vacuum. Often it is or attempt or effort to communicate with somebody, to talk to somebody. So when we create, we're often thinking in terms of an audience. Somebody's going to see this. Somebody's going to look at this. Mm. There's, there's a rock. I saw a picture of a rock on Facebook. And there's an inscription written in Greek on it. And uh, it's about a 200-pound rock. And the inscription says, I, Pericles and Rockless lifted this stone above my head with one hand. <laughs> okay, he wanted somebody to know. We want somebody to see this stuff. We want somebody to hmm. respond to it. So if you are in a fandom or a community 
uh, you're probably going to try and make something that this community is watching. So if you make your brand new, you know, space opera epic inspired by Star Wars that has no real connection to it, your friends aren't going to be interested. Maybe the four or five people closest to you might sit there and watch it. But if you make, say, a really interesting, you know, Doctor Who fan film or a Doctor Who parody or your own little version of Star Wars, then it kind of catches on. Go back to that kid who is uh, the right. who Michael Sarah parodied, who's waving his lightsaber around in the garage. Yeah, um, yeah. If it was just some random kid who was, you know, practicing fencing because he wanted to do his like, you know, uh, say Three Musketeers riff, or he was inspired by, by say some, he wanted to do a Western. That wouldn't have gone viral. Nobody would have cared. Nobody would have thought about it. But because he was trying to reach out and work with a cultural touchstone, that goes viral. So, you know, fan films are made for an audience of fans. And, and so, you know, you trespass on, on this colonized commodity, this commercial commodity, uh, because that's where the people are. That's, that's where you personally are engaged. Mm. It's also mm. where the community that you belong to is engaged. Nobody wants to go off into the woods and create a masterpiece that no one will see. They yeah. want to, you know, create their masterpiece in town. Michelangelo, when he works on the Sistine Chapel, is not doing it in a cave somewhere where he probably could have had better working conditions. No, he's doing it where all <laughs> these people good. are going to be coming by to see it. So there, there huh. is that. And, and yeah, I think it opens up the door for people to work with these tools and go on and do much more independent, much more, you know, uncontained or unowned stuff. But if you're just fooling around with something you love, do your Star Trek, do your Star Wars, do your Doctor Who, do yeah. your you know, version of alien or so, superheroes. So would you say it's just, it's, it's the community aspect of it. That's just as important as the creative aspect of, of the activity. Yeah. Because it's, it's, yeah. it's within the community where this matters. Yes. Well, you know, I think community is always an important part of creativity. Like, you know, are, are we are social beings. Do we exist in complete isolation? I think there's something sad about that. The death row prisoner, who writes his poetry on a wall that nobody will see. There is something forlorn and lost. Or is it a triumph of the human spirit? Because it, it could be that even though he knows no one's going to see it, he still wants to express himself in some way, and he still manages to express it. I mean, that's just because you don't have an audience doesn't mean it doesn't have value. I, I completely agree. I think, that, I think there, there is that. But let's not pretend that the idea that somebody is going to read your poem at some point is a motivating factor. Hmm. Well, I, I agree yeah. with that. I mean, I'm yeah. sure he hopes that it's going to be read, mm -hmm. but probably recognizes it's not going to be read, yet still writes it. Why? Well, there's other people in the death row um, who are going to be occupying that cell after you're gone. So there's the audience. There's a built-in audience. <laughs> You know, reaching out for, for a community after you're gone. We don't have yeah. to talk to people right now when we are creating. But I think there is that impulse that we're talking to somebody at some point in, in the future, even if we never meet them. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that when I write The Mermaid's Tale, people who I have no idea of, people who I've never met, may read it. And I kind of like that. I, I kind of like inflicting misery on complete strangers. Um, <laughs> but this is the thing. I mean, otherwise, I could just walk up to people I know and talk to them about it. I wouldn't have to write a novel at all. I think you should keep writing the novels. I haven't, so I'm sorry I haven't read the book yet, but I will. Oh, that's okay. I've got tons of stuff. You should go and read it all. You should buy it. <laughs> I'll buy it at the very least. I think actually I've already bought it. I just haven't read it yet. <laughs> well, Mark has heard me rave about it uh, often enough. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and I, I probably should issue a reminder that it does have some challenging bits. Yeah, I'm okay that, with that. Uh, yeah, not dissimilar to challenging bits at the beginning of uh Stephen R. Donaldson's classic uh the first Thomas Covenant. the first trilogy. The... Yeah. I do admit that some of my writing is very dark and it deals with and touches on things that people can find uncomfortable and difficult. And uh I've I've come to understand why, because I've had those experiences so they're part of me and, and perhaps I need to keep addressing them or coping with them. Or maybe it's just part of this world that I live in. But yeah, there's darkness. So, you know, buyer beware. It's a feature, not a bug, yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Life so, can be dark. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to ask, uh, in light of the uh, the fan fiction and your point that um, the people are doing it because it does give them access to that built-in audience, what does it mean for writers like us and you who are creating our own original material that is not connected to those those works? Is there any point in us doing that? Would we be better off you know, creating essentially fanfic? Well... <laughs> All right. So if you get a contract to write a Star Wars novel, you're probably going to make big bucks up front and your novel is going to probably sell 20 or 30,000 copies guaranteed. And my novel uh, has probably sold less than a couple of thousand copies to date. I mean, that's just sort of the nature of the thing. But I didn't feel like writing a Star Wars novel and Lucasfilm wasn't ringing my doorbell to get me to do it. So there's that. I think for a lot of my writing, it's unconnected to a particular franchise. It's it's unconnected to an existing colonized intellectual property. I'm writing things that are important to me that I want to write about. And there's an entire class or genre of, of fan filmmakers. There's, there's fan fiction writers. And I, mm-hmm. I respect what they do. Some of it is is completely inaccessible or abstract to me, especially when you get into things like slash fiction, where suddenly Kirk and Spock are having relationships. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, there's dynamics here that are apparently important and satisfying to people that I, I just don't relate to. But if it's working for them, fine. I, I think... One of the things that you come across, not just with fan filmmakers, is that they will, the ones who stick to it, the ones who develop some skill and talent, they they will, many of them will break into the industry in some way. A lot of fan fiction writers have actually broken into mainstream in some way or other. Uh, it's not a it's not a clear direct path, but it's if you're being creative in one thing, you don't just stop. Probably the most famous example of a fan fiction that got big is uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, which started off as a Twilight fanfic uh, with Stephanie Myers. 
And uh, somehow it managed to, you know, carry on on its own and develop life of its own. Now, of course, you know, between Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey, whoever did that filed off all the serial numbers very, very carefully. Um, <laughs> and uh, it got published like and publishable. And you have to kind of wonder, like, how many, how many science fiction novels out there started off, you know, just carefully filing off the serial numbers of Star Trek? I mean, you know, you look at The Expanse or, or you look at Stargate or Farscape or, or even Lex. I think it represents a kind of cultural dialogue. You know, you've got the space opera, Star Trek and Star Wars and Alien, these different visions of the future. And, and you can start with one of those visions of the future and file the serial numbers off, or you start a reaction to one of those and try and create something that is, is completely different. Uh, but you're informed by what's out there. And it's a part of the conversation, isn't it? Yes, yes, completely. You know, Star Trek is, is a, a part of the discourse. And then, you know, the next work comes along and is a response to that. And, uh, and mm -hmm. it's all, yeah, a part of the yeah. cultural dialogue. Are either of you guys worried about the constant reboots? <laughs> yeah. Well, in terms of, for instance, I, I did a, a series of books called Lex Unauthorized about the Lex television series. And Lex, when it came out, uh, was around the, around the turn of the, the millennium. And it was very much a reaction to Star Trek. Star Trek, through the next generation, DS9, Voyager, had created this vision of the future and this vision of what humanity was. And, and Lex becomes a reaction to that. And there were a bunch of shows that showed up around the same time that are all a reaction to Star Trek's utopian vision, Star Trek's aesthetic sensibility. Um, so you had Firefly, you know. You had um, Battlestar Galactica, the most famous one, obviously. You had Farscape. SG-1 was uh, somewhat of a reaction to Star Trek. Even Babylon 5, in its own way, is a reaction to Star Trek. We are always in dialogue with this world that's around us and, and you know, with dominant media presence. Okay, we're wrapping up. I do, I do want to tie this back to, to your books about uh, Doctor Who pirate history. So in, in your books... Can you tell us a little bit more about those books? And does it give us a, an indication of where we can find some of these alternate fan fiction works? Fan films, and yes. Um, fan films? It talks yeah. about the best and the most interesting fan films uh, that are out there. Literally, you know, recreations of the show that you can sort of sit there and watch and go, okay, you could slip this into a DVD set with the classical series and... You can enjoy it. There's uh, DW 2012 with Luke Newman. There is the uh, Doctor Who Velocity series uh, starring Sharon Moore. You have Barbara Benedetti's uh, First Woman Doctor. Still holds up 40 years later. You have uh, hmm. Rupert Booth and uh, his time-based crew who did 14 episodes, 14 half-hour episodes, five stories. And it's like discovering a lost season just with a brand new doctor huh. out of wow. nowhere and, and all very professional, all, all amazing. Some of them imperfect, but they've always got something interesting. I did a chronicle of all of the doctor who stage plays, both formal and informal. This is the nice thing back in, back in like the nineties, the show was off the air. If somebody went to the BBC and said, I'd like to do doctor who as a stage play, the BBC would say, Oh yeah, sure. Whatever, do it. And it would be official, semi-official. So you have the Empress of Otherwhen. You have Planet of Fire. You have this guy, Nick Scoville, 
who did five consecutive Doctor Who stage plays. And he did a fan film called Power of the Daleks, which was a, a recreation or re reimagining. We look at the reconstructions, which is a whole different area where, where we look at the way that fans saved all the lost episodes in audio. So that's just kind of like an amazing story. We look at gay, at uh, gray market stuff where people were realized, oh, well, Doctor Who is property of the BBC, but these aliens called, say, the Santerans or, or the Great Intelligence or the Yeti, they belong to the writers. So they would go to the writers and they would make the deal. And suddenly you had like, you know, mm. the Santaran movie. Hmm. which is sort of halfway in the Doctor Who universe. They never mentioned the Doctor, but it's there. Huh. And then people began to experiment with animation, and, 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 and fan animation literally drove the, the real professional animation from the BBC. There were lost serials and scripts that were never made by the BBC. Fans have made them. Uh, there's wow. something called the Masters of Luxor, which was supposed to be the second Doctor Who serial, and it was made in black and white in four episodes with a fan group. There's this thing called called Devious, and this is a fan film project that has been going on for about 35 years, and they actually got John Pertwee, one of the real doctors, to oh, wow. star in a scene in it. And, you know, they're finally getting to the point where they're releasing it one episode a year, so there are four episodes up, and it's just amazing to see. So you've got all of this wonderful stuff, and and I, I write about it. I talk about where it comes from. I talk about the cultural impact, all of these these different aspects of the show that's just right off the mainstream, audio adventures, and where those came from. The wonderful thing is between YouTube and Daily Motion, and various sources, this a lot of this stuff is more accessible now than it has ever been before. There is a kid, like I've said, named Luke Newman started doing his own Doctor Who. And sometimes it was just Luke. He had to be both the hero and the monster. Uh, but he <laughs> built himself in, in his parents' shed, his own little TARDIS uh, control room and console, and, you know, did the job. And, and he worked his way through. He's got something like 40 episodes. He has a body of work that is literally equivalent to a mainstream doctor. And while some of it is, you know, kind of twee and maybe cheap and, and silly, there, there are some episodes that he's done that are, are just solid. And you can sit there and go, yeah, yeah, this is enjoyable. And he's doing it with like some fraction of the budget of the BBC. I will take Luke Newman's Doctor Who 2012 over the Whitaker era, maybe even up there with the Capaldi era. It's wow. just a nice piece of work. And so I want to celebrate, you know, these people who are doing these yeah. things and doing them amazingly out of a sense of love. And, and I, I would really encourage your listeners, if you're Doctor Who fans, to, you know, just go on YouTube, search out some of these people, search out some of these names. Buy my books if you want to figure out who's doing what and where to find them. And if you're saying... Hey, we will put uh, links yeah. to your books uh, up on, uh, oh, on, on our website. Yeah. And, and if you're a Star Trek fan, then I would recommend to you something called Star Trek Continues. It, it's an insane thing. There's this actor named Vic Mignogna who, who spent $100,000 rebuilding the original sets from the original blueprints for the original Star Trek series, got a bunch of actors uh, and crew together, 
and, and literally did his own classical Star Trek series, including bringing back actors who were in the original show uh, from the 1960s. It is the most amazing thing. You know, look up John Cosentino wow. and Paragon's Paragon and just get this strange little 70s nostalgia. Look up Hardware Wars, for God's sakes. Um, <laughs> or what was it? Pink Five, a, a really cool Star Wars um, series of fanfics that started off as just somebody having a bit of a lark and then ended up costing as much as a small house. Yeah. Holy cow. Mark, yeah. any final thoughts or uh, questions? No, just to say thanks to DG for bringing this to our attention. It's been a it's been a complete slice, and you know it's nice to be able to talk to other human beings on a Sunday night. So, yay, um, <laughs> yay, win, all the way yay, around. human interaction, yeah. yay. <laughs> it is a great pleasure to uh, to have you on the podcast, DG. So, really appreciate your uh, taking the time. Thank you very much, and it's been such a pleasure. Creative is produced by Mark Rayner and Joe Mahoney. Technical production and music by Joe Mahoney. Web design by Mark Rayner. Show notes and all episodes are available at recreative.ca. That's re-creative.ca. Drop us a line at joemahoney at donovanstreetpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>